Well, would you open to First Timothy? The last time that I spoke, we began looking at this first letter that Paul sent to his young associate, a young man named Timothy. He had left Timothy there at Ephesus. This would be around 63 A.D., somewhere in that vicinity, to deal with the affairs of the recently established church there in Ephesus. And he tells us what the main aim of the letter is in uh, chapter 3, verse 15. I am writing these things to you, hoping to come to you before long. But in case I am delayed, I write so that you may know how one ought to conduct himself in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and support of truth. He tells Timothy something else that should be done often in their gatherings, and that's found over in chapter 4, verse 13. He says, Until I come, give attention to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation and teaching. So, the public reading of Scripture, I'll take that as an exhortation to us this morning to read the section that we're going to look at this morning, which is chapter 1, verses 1 through 17, except I thought I might have a little help here. So, John Barry, I'm going to spring this on you. Uh, Would you come up here and read verses 1 through 17? Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, according to the commandment of God our Savior and of Christ Jesus, who is our hope, to Timothy, my true child in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. As I urged you upon my departure from Macedonia, remain on at Ephesus, so that you may instruct certain men not to teach strange doctrines or to pay attention to myths and endless genealogies, which give rise to mere speculation, rather than furthering the administration of God, which is by faith. But the goal of our instruction is love from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. For some men, straying from these things, have turned aside to fruitless discussion, warning to be teachers of the law, even though they do not understand either what they are saying or the matters about which they make confident assertions. But we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully, realizing the fact that law is not made for a righteous person, but for those who are lawless and rebellious, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who kill their fathers or mothers, for murderers and immoral men and homosexuals, and kidnappers, and liars, and perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound teaching according to the glorious gospel of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. I thank Christ Jesus our Lord who has strengthened me because he considered me faithful, putting me into service, even though I was formerly a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent aggressor. Yet I was shown mercy because I acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord was more than abundant 
with the faith and love which are found in Christ Jesus. It is a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, among whom I am foremost of all. Yet for this reason I found mercy, so that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might demonstrate his perfect patience as an example for those who would believe in him for eternal life. Now to the King eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Thank you. Well, Paul had assigned Timothy this great responsibility of helping this new church. There were difficulties, there were problems with false teaching, there were uh, there was the need of appointing elders, uh, many different situations that uh, were confronting Timothy, and Paul was trying to help him with this letter just to give some direction to him in terms of what needed to be done there at Ephesus. So this letter really deals with the care and organization of the flock of God, so it should be of interest to us here this morning. Uh, and that's why it's called a pastoral letter. It was something for the pastor to, as he takes care of the flock. But it's, it, you know, it's for all of us because it teaches us what uh, the church should be like and what it should be doing. It tells Timothy how men and women should be uh, conducting themselves in the household of God. It uh, tells how to deal with these various threats that were endangering, endangering the purity of the church and the people of God. And on top of all that, I think it was really one of the primary things was just to be an encouragement to Timothy himself uh, to press on in the work that God had called him to. So this morning we want to continue on with this first section of the letter where he begins to deal with some of the errors that uh, the Ephesian Christians were having to deal with and also um, points out what God has done in his life, as I think, as an encouragement to Timothy. So he calls these, these, these doctrinal deviations, he calls them strange doctrines. And, uh, you know, when we read these letters in the New Testament... Uh, it's almost like you're getting, uh, it's like you're listening in on a conversation on the, on the telephone, except, you know, if you're in a room, you hear just one side of that conversation, unless they put it on speaker. <laughs> but normally you just hear one side of the conversation. So we have the, the side of the conversation that Paul sends to Timothy. We don't know the other side of the conversation. And so we're not exactly sure, for instance, what some of these strange teachings were, strange, strange doctrines. It seems to be a mixture of a Jewish misunderstanding of the Old Testament and some early forms of what's called Gnosticism. Gnosticism really didn't develop until the second century, but there's the rudiments of it were already surfacing in the early church. So whatever these teachings were, Paul said that they did not further the administration of God, which is by faith. In other words, what God was trying to do in his people, what he was trying to administer amongst his people, these kind of teachings did not further that. 
They were counter to God's goal for his people, which Paul tells us in verse 5, which we spent some time on last, last week, or last time I spoke, was God's, God's purpose, his goal for his people is love from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. What the gospel is supposed to produce in the church is answered in those, that little section right there. And essentially, it's love. Love to God and love to others. We said that the goal of the preaching and teaching, our interaction with one another, uh, should be to fit us to live with God forever. And the God that we're going to, going to live with forever is a God of love. So consequently, it should fit us for that environment, which is going to be an environment of love. So that's what should be worked on and produced in the church in our times together. Some teachers straying from these central things, Paul says, have gone off into fruitless discussion. There's no fruit there. No fruit. And the fruit, what's the fruit supposed to be? The fruit's supposed to be love. And he's saying these kind of discussions that these these false teachers are presenting are not, will not and are not producing that type of thing. So it does not matter that such teachers might be able to make very confident assertions. You see that he says that they're able to do that. Uh, wanting to be teachers of the law, verse 7, even though they did not understand either what they were saying or the matters about which they make confident assertions. They wanted to be teachers, teachers of the law, people who were recognized as rab- rabbis or great leaders. But Paul says they were not talking about things. They were talking about things they didn't understand, and they weren't talking about the things that really were important. Uh, they were making confident assertions, but these assertions were leading people off track. And I think there's a lesson for us right there. Just because a person can stand up and make a confident assertion about something doesn't mean they're right. They might even be using Scripture. These people no doubt were using Scripture if they were Jewish teachers using the Old Testament law. So we have to be careful. You know, we're prone, at least I'm kind of prone, to think, you know, if somebody can really state something strongly and assertively, well, I should listen. Well, maybe maybe you shouldn't listen. It might not be what God wants you to hear. So, what was happening? These teachers were taking the Old Testament scriptures, especially related to the law. They were using God's word, but they were mixing it in with speculations and man-made teachings. And so they were causing people to go astray from the gospel. It's important to note, I think, and Paul emphasizes this, that he is not opposed to the proper use of the law of God. But these law teachers did not understand the lawful use of the law. Isn't that, that's kind of an amazing way he puts that, isn't it? They're not using the law lawfully, rightly. He says that the law is good, but it must be used lawfully. So what's, what's the right use of the law? That should be a question that comes to our mind as we read this section. Well, it is to remind us, to restrain, to reprove, to convict evildoers. That's what the law is for, to convict, to put before the person their sin. Uh, Paul says it this way in Romans chapter 3, 
that all the world may become accountable to God. He says that's what the law is for, that all the world may become accountable to God. In, in Romans chapter 6, he says, he's talking about the law, and it says that sin might be shown to be exceedingly sinful. That's what the law is for. In Galatians chapter 3, he says it's a tutor to lead us to Christ. So those are some of the thoughts there, but the idea mainly is, is that the law can teach us about sin, but it cannot transform us. It can reveal sin, but it cannot remove sin. You have to have the gospel for that. Now, I like the way Luther said it. He said, the law discovers our disease. The gospel gives us the remedy. So the law was to show, show how sinful sin was, to show, just put it right in front of your face, this is wrong, this is displeasing to God. So what Paul does here is set, sets out kind of a catalog of that type of sin, the type of things that he's talking about that the law condemns. First of all, the law is for the lawless. That's who the law is for, the lawless. So it's like putting a big stop sign in front of a person's face saying, hold it. That way is not right. Stop. It's for the lawless. Those who know those things that are right and wrong but seek to break them with impunity. They just are not going to do it. The lawless. They deliberately break the laws in order to satisfy their selfish desires. The next thing it's for is for the rebellious, that is, the undisciplined, the unruly, who refuse to obey any authority. That's a rebellious person. That's who the law is for, people who just are rebellious. They don't want to follow God's way. They refuse any authority. The law is also for the ungodly and sinners, those that are irreverent and irreligious and actively go against God goes on to say it's for the unholy and profane, those who deny sacred things. One translation of the word profane is polluted, that which will desecrate and defile anything related to God. That's who the law is for. Now, as you go through that list so far, those things are, all have a Godward direction. Have you noticed that? That's the same way the Ten Commandments are. The Ten Commandments start out Godward and then about halfway through switch over to man-to-man or people-to-people relationships. They start out with sins against God. That's what Paul does here. And then he turns to sins against others. So there he brings up those who would kill their father or mother, murderers, immoral men, homosexuals, kidnappers, liars, perjurers. So this is certainly a terrible list of of uh, sinfulness, sinful attitudes and actions, and it probably mirrors the something of the society in which the church was trying to function. Gives you a feel for what the church had to deal with. As one writer said, this list of sins is in fact a description of the world in which the early Christians lived and moved and had their being. Nothing shows us so well how the Christian church was a little island of purity in a vicious world. This is, what, this is where they lived. This is what they had to deal with. 
And it's still the case. It's always, always been that case, sometimes to a greater or lesser degree. But it's always true that the church, in whatever situation it finds itself, is to be an island of virtue in the midst of a sea of sin. That's what the church is to be. These particular sins that Paul mentions were just some of many. So he concludes the list by saying, and whatever else is contrary to sound teaching according to the glorious gospel of the blessed God with which I've been entrusted. Now there's some interesting things in that little section that I want to just pick apart here a little bit. This phrase, sound teaching, whatever's contrary to sound teaching, uh, when you read the commentaries, it becomes a little, it becomes quite interesting. It literally means health-giving teaching. Sound teaching is health-giving teaching. We get our English word hygiene from the Greek word that's used here for sound teaching. The law, again, as Luther said, the law could point out our disease, but it could not bring health. The gospel when truly received, brings wholeness and health to the soul. The law could never do that. Wholeness and health to the soul. One person said it's like the moral antiseptic which alone can cleanse a person's sinful life. Another phrase that's interesting in in this section is in verse 11, which speaks of the glorious gospel. Many commentators point out that the Greek here literally means the gospel of the glory of the blessed God. The gospel of the glory of the blessed God. In other words, it connects the glory with God. Paul is not telling us what kind of thing the gospel is, but what it is about. It's about the glory of God. The gospel is about about the glory of God. The gospel is a manifestation, the great manifestation of the glory of God that has been shown to us in the person and work of Christ. The gospel is glorious, but it's glorious because it came from the blessed God of glory. The revelation of God in Jesus Christ is the glory of God. It's one of the highest manifestations of the glory of God, and that's what we have in the gospel. It's what the gospel's all about, what God has done in Christ. So when Paul thinks of this gospel of the glory of the blessed God, he also thinks of what an amazing and astonishing thing it is that he's been entrusted with this gospel. He just cannot get over this, that this gospel is so wonderful that he has actually considered who he was that he's been entrusted with this gospel. So when he thinks about that, it's almost like he seems, anyway, to to digress a little bit, to give an autobiographical sketch in order to thank and praise God for putting him into the ministry. It's like he's going along, talking to Timothy, and then he starts telling, this is what God did for me. Remember this. I can't help but remember the, the wonder of what God did for me. I think Paul never ceased to be amazed that God could love, forgive, and use such a terrible sinner like him. 
He continually marveled at this. He marveled at the gospel and he marveled that the gospel was applied to his life. So, let's just examine this section a little bit where he talks about what God has done in his life. He tells us what the gospel is and what it can do. What it is in a nutshell is found in the first part of verse 15. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. That's the gospel in a nutshell right there. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. As Luke tells us in 19, uh, chapter 19, verse 10, He, that is Christ, came to seek and to save that which was lost. That's why Christ came, to seek and to save that which was lost. So that's what the gospel is. What can it do? That's found in the last little phrase of verse 15. It can save the foremost, the chief of sinners. It can take someone like Paul, someone like Saul, and turn him into a Paul. It can take the chief of sinners and make him into a saint. It can take a persecutor of Christ and change him into a proclaimer of Christ. So Paul goes on and states at least at least four things that he thanks Christ Jesus for in this section. First of all, he thanks Christ that he had shown him mercy and grace. You see that in verse 13 and 14. Though I was formerly a persecutor and violent aggressor, yet I was shown mercy because I acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord Jesus was more abundant with faith and love which are found in Christ Jesus. So he's, he's thanking God, he's thanking Christ for the mercy and the grace shown him. He was, straight at, he was headed straight for destruction and God turned him around, stopped him and turned him around. That's, I think he's surely thinking back to what happened to him there on the Damascus Road as he's going through this section. When Paul was showing no mercy to God's people, that's what he was on that road for. He was out to, to bring havoc and harm to the church of God. When he, when Paul was showing no mercy to God's people, God showed him much mercy, great mercy. Next, he's thankful that God strengthened him. God enabled him, empowered him, and equipped him to be a Christian, to be a proclaimer of the gospel. Paul would never say something like, see what I've done for God. Paul doesn't do that type of thing. It's always, his emphasis is always, see what God has done for me. See how God has enabled even me to live for him. Uh, this little phrase here where he says, he strengthened me. Um, having trouble finding it right now. Verse 12, yeah, I didn't look up far enough. I thank Christ Jesus our Lord because he has strengthened me, because he considered me faithful, putting me into the ministry. He strengthened me. That's the same little phrase that he uses in Philippians where it says, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. So he's thinking of the power of God that's been applied to his life. So he's thankful for being strengthened. As one writer put it, 
No one is good enough or strong enough or pure enough or wise enough to be a servant of Christ. But if we give ourselves to Christ, he will, we will go forward not in our own strength, but in the strength of the Lord. Paul was experiencing that, and he was thankful for it. Probably Paul is emphasizing the enabling power of God to encourage Timothy. Timothy, you remember we pointed out, was at least at times seemed to be somewhat timid in his uh, demeanor and way of approaching things. And Paul was emphasizing, listen, the power is from God. It's not from you anyway. So to encourage his co-worker that the task that he'd been called to there in Ephesians was not too much for him if he would but rely on the power of God. Another thing that Paul was thankful for was that God considered him faithful, putting him into the ministry. God had not only forgiven Paul, he had entrusted him with a work to do. God put him into service as one he considered to be trustworthy. Now, how could you take someone like Paul and consider him to be trustworthy? Well, there's only one explanation, and that's the grace of God. Paul knew that it was all of grace, but nevertheless, he marveled that God would entrust the gospel into his hands. And we, you know, as Christians ourselves, should marvel that God has entrusted the gospel to us. Think, think of the treasure that he's put in our hands to give to other people. It's an incredible thing that he would do that for you and I. The super abundant grace of God is the only explanation for this. I say super abundant because that's the idea that Paul tries to convey there in verse 14. The grace of our Lord was more than abundant. The word in the Greek, and I wish I knew Greek instead I always had to tell you what the commentators say, but I don't. I just tell you what the commentator says. It's hyper. The word, the, it's, the, the, it's the Greek word hyperabundant. Super abundant. Paul does that a lot. He puts hyper on, on the front of a, a phrase because he's trying to emphasize something. Well, this is the hyperabundant grace of God that uh, put him into service. Where sin abounded, grace did much more abound. It hyperabounded. So, Paul was a believer in the superabundant God who applies superabundant grace to make us so that we can do his work. The last thing that Paul mentions here is something he's thankful for, as something he's thankful for is this, that God appointed him. God put him into the ministry. That's how a person gets in the ministry. And that if each of you have a ministry too, I'm not, we're not just talking about so-called ministers here. We're all ministers. And God puts you in that position as a Christian. You don't take that unto yourself. Paul didn't appoint himself. That's what a false teacher will try to do. You see that up in verse 7, wanting to be teachers of the law. They want to put, put themselves in that position. That's not what Paul did. God put him in a position of being a minister. And he puts each one of us in a position where we can minister to other people. 
those false teachers wanted to be recognized as great teachers, but no man takes this honor unto himself. God must do this, and when he does it, it's always an appointment unto service. It's not an appointment unto some type of a exalted position. It's an appointment to service. Uh, service to God, service to others. You could say it this way. Every person that is saved is saved to serve. It's not a position ever to be, think of yourself as exalted over someone else. You're saved to serve. And that's what Paul was emphasizing here. He realized that uh, at the end of verse 12. I thank Christ Jesus our Lord who has strengthened me because he considered me faithful, putting me into service. He put him into service. So, just to recap here, Paul was thankful that God had shown him mercy, thankful that God had strengthened him, thankful that God considered him faithful, and thankful that God had appointed him to serve. Now, if you think, just from what you've read in the scriptures and other sections, about all that Paul went through, the beatings, the stonings, the misunderstandings, the imprisonment, all the difficulties and dangers that he had to deal with. Nevertheless, he is so thankful to be a Christian. It's, a, it's an exhortation to us, isn't it? He was thankful that he was entrusted with the gospel, the gospel of the glory of the blessed God. So, is that our attitude, especially in the midst of difficulties and trials? It's a good question to ask ourselves, I think. We need God's help, don't we? I think that one of the things that helped Paul maintain this attitude was just what he was doing here in this section, remembering the pit of unbelief and sin from whence he came. When it's done in the right way, remembering our past sins can be helpful if it's done in the right way. And Paul was doing it the right way here. How can it be helpful? For one, it can keep us from spiritual pride. Another thing it can do is it can help us be compassionate for those who are yet slaves to sin. Just remember where we came from. It can promote thankfulness as it does here with Paul. I thank Christ Jesus our Lord who has strengthened me because he considered me faithful, putting me into the ministry. So it can, make, it can help us with this attitude of thankfulness and it can help us to be more loving just as we remember the great love with which he loved us. He loved us when we were yet unlovely and unloving. So that can help us to be more loving to people who are unloving. And uh, in some cases, unlovely. Well, I think it 
it can also encourage others as they realize that you and I were not always like this. In other words, especially for a young Christian or someone that's not a Christian yet, they look at you and it's, if you've been a Christian for a while and kind of think, well, that's just the way that person always was. Well, that is not the way that person always was. And it's, it's good, I think, for people to realize, I used to be down in that pit, and God's the one that brought me out of it. So it can be an encouragement to others that way, that, that we were messed up too. But that's some things that can be profitable from looking back on our sins. But the important thing is that when we remember our former sins and unbelief, we also remember the still greater goodness and grace of God. You've got to, you've got to keep that in there. The superabundant grace of God has made it so that we are forgiven sinners. We're not just sinners. We're forgiven sinners. We should remember our sin only to rejoice in God's grace and forgiveness. Always keep Christ in view when you think of your past sins, lest you fall into discouragement. That's what Satan would want to do with your, your past sins. Bring them up in order to discourage you. I like the way Martin Lloyd-Jones says it in his book, Spiritual Depression. He says, We must never look at any sin in our past life in any, in any way except that which leads us to praise God and to magnify the grace of Christ. That's the only way to look at them in ways that makes us magnify the grace of God and praise God. Um, if you look at your past and are depressed by it, if as a result you are feeling miserable as a Christian, you must do what Paul did. He does not stay in a corner and say, I'm not fit to be a Christian. I've done such terrible things. Not at all. What, he, what it does to him, its effect upon him, is that it makes him praise God. He glories in grace and says, And the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ was exceeding abundant with faith, with the faith and love which are in Christ Jesus. In other words, he uses that as a way of exalting Christ, not of beating himself down, but of exalting Christ. Yeah. Actually, I think it is sin. It's sin to allow past sin which God has dealt with in Christ to rob us of joy and our usefulness in the present or in the future. We've got to see it. that's wrong to do that. Don't let that happen. Not our former disgrace, but God's ever-present grace should be our primary focus. Whenever we remember the greatness of our sin, we should remember the even greater greatness of our Savior. Yeah. And if we do that, if we truly do that, latch on to that, hold on to that, then we can rejoice and praise God. And God will use us. Even as we realize we're not worthy to be used, it doesn't matter. He's taken care of that in Christ. And He will use us. For his glory. Well, in closing, then, I want to emphasize verse 15 because it's such a wonderful verse. This is a good one, children. If you uh, 
Want to memorize a verse? This is a good one. It is a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, among whom I am foremost of all. It's such a good summary of the gospel. Paul says that it is a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance. He uses this little phrase, trustworthy statement, five times in the pastoral epistles. He liked that little phrase. This is a trustworthy statement. Maybe we'll look at those sometime. Uh, uh, Just put them all together. But he says this is a trustworthy statement. Uh, In other words, you can bank on this. It's absolutely reliable that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Now, there's an example that I like, and I was just thinking about how to present it, but I, I remember a scene from a documentary of people climbing Mount Everest, and they came to this crevice or crevasse. Is it crevasse or crevice? Crevice. <laughs> we'll go with crevice. Anyway, this deep, Place between two sections of, of snow and ice that they had to get across, but there was this little, like it was a ladder or a little bridge across there. I don't know if it was left from a former expedition or not, but somebody had to go out on that thing to see if it was trustworthy. And that's what we're talking about here. Somebody goes out on that. If I go out, and I, they, when they went out on it, they were on their hands and knees. They didn't just go walking out. They on their hands and knees going across this. If I go across that, you might say, well, it looks like it's trustworthy, but he's kind of skinny. <laughs> but let's put somebody else on there. Now, I won't pick anybody here. <laughs> I'll pick on the heaviest man in the world who weighed 1,399 pounds. I don't even know if he could move. But if he could... And he went out on there and got across, and it didn't break. I would say, that, that bridge or that ladder across there is trustworthy. I can go out on it. That 1,399-pound guy did it. Surely I can do it. That's what Paul's saying here. Paul's saying, he, he's saved me, the foremost of sinners. You can be sure he can save you. That's, that's, that's what he's saying And yet for this reason I found mercy in order that in me as the foremost Christ Jesus might demonstrate his perfect patience as an example of those who would believe in him for eternal life. He said, God's using me as the extreme example to show that he can save anybody. I was a blasphemer. I was a hater of God. I was a hater of God's people. And he saved me. If he can save me, there's hope for anyone, Paul's saying. And the grace that changed me can change you also. That's, that's what he would like to emphasize. Paul has proven the trustworthiness of the gospel in his own experience as a chief of sinners. So that, that's part of what he says here. He says it's a trustworthy statement, but that's not only. The thing, that's not the only thing he says. He says, deserving full acceptance. 
this, this phrase that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. It's deserving full acceptance. I think you can look at this two ways. First of all, this truth concerning Christ coming into the world to save sinners should be received by all. It should be fully received. The fact that Christ came into the world to save sinners should be received by all people everywhere. It will meet the need of every nationality and personality, gender, race, whatever the situation. It deserves full acceptance. Moreover, this great gospel is worthy of everyone's full acceptance in this sense. No one should be lukewarm about it. They should fully accept the gospel, you and I and everyone else. It's worthy of everyone's full, complete acceptance. So this is Paul's, Paul saying, what I'm telling you here, what he's, Christ has done for me, it's trustworthy for everyone and it should be fully received by everyone, completely received, embraced by everyone who hears. That's true here for us today. This is a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I'm foremost of all. I don't know if Paul, you know, there may have been there may have been worse sinners, probably were worse sinners than Paul, but Paul considered himself the chief of sinners because God had convicted him of the great the greatness of the terribleness, the the terrible aspect of how much he had done against God and against God's people. Well, when he thinks of the gospel and what the gospel has done for him and what the gospel can do for anyone, any time, any place, he just breaks into a doxology, which is what we should do too. I mean, that should, at least in our heart, that should be welling up. Now to the king, eternal immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. I mean, isn't it strange, just in the middle of this letter, he breaks into this doxology? It may have been an early song or saying in the church. It almost has that feel to it. But right here, as he's writing Timothy, he cannot help but do this as he thinks of the grace of God that's been applied to his life. Well, we'll take up there next time, Lord willing. This is a, a wonderful introduction to this letter where he's going to start giving Timothy some, some instruction on how to conduct himself and how others should conduct themselves in the household of God.